Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is December 12th, 2016. And this is episode four, Let's Talk, Supporting Responders During Disaster Response. In this episode, we discuss concepts of providing support for disaster responders during the event. And we explore some challenges surrounding incorporating disaster mental health services in large and complex events. We also offer a few tools and tips of the trade for supporting resilience. We also have the opportunity to interview Nate Pike, a member of the Alberta Health Services EMS peer support team, which deployed to Fort McMurray during the 2016 wildfires. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcasts, current, relevant, Canadian. So the topic of disaster responder resilience on an individual level, anyways, has been one of much debate and has enjoyed a bit of a resurgence in popularity in, in Canadian media recently, especially to do with AHS, EMS, so that's Alberta Health Services, Emergency Medical Services. A lot of attention has been given to some PTSD rates and suicide rates amongst responders nationwide, not just in Alberta. And the question of what to do about this is still an emerging one. Yeah, and you know, Grace, I know you know, both of us with uh, first responder backgrounds. Uh, it's something I see very frequently on all the social media feeds. And it's, you know, very common that you see uh, the black uh, ribbon and things like that uh, associated with uh, yet, yet another um, first responder suicide. And, and it's important to separate, I think, some of the terms because uh, when talking about mental health, uh, terminology is really important. But uh, traditionally, terms like occupational stress injury have been used to describe long-term kind of chronic amounting stress from from uh, various uh, um, traumatic exposures. Uh, in disasters, I think there's another phenomenon um, and unique uh, challenges uh, that are that kind of arise with the complexity of disasters and makes it difficult to provide good disaster uh, mental health supports. So uh, certainly, um, I think two different issues to, mm-hmm. to sort out there. And to that end, we approached Nate Pike, who is a member of peer support within AHS EMS, but also deployed in the disaster setting to the Fort McMurray wildfires of uh, 2016. And interestingly, it was one of the first times that the peer support element had been worked into the emergency plan. And he's here to talk about a few of the hurdles that he overcame, a few of the uh, tips and tricks uh, that he he gathered for deploying this element and supporting mental health. Uh, But before we begin, he did want me to pass on a bit of a disclaimer. He's he's not a psychologist. He's not a psychiatrist. Neither am I. <laughs> these are these are uh, experience-driven points that he garnered from his uh, his deployment to Fort McMurray. So let's take a listen. Sounds good. Nate, thank you very much for joining us. And let me start by asking, uh, what is CISM, and what was your role in delivering it during the 2016 Fort McMurray wildfires? Um, CISM is Critical Incident Stress Management. Uh, The idea behind it is uh, to give practitioners who have been uh, exposed to traumatic situations or traumatic incidents the opportunity to to process some of their experiences in a a relatively healthy and safe environment. Okay. And when should that be done on the response phase of, of a disaster? Well, that's something that we have to figure out. Um, Traditionally, CISM is, I mean, it's one tool in a a large toolbox. Uh, Traditionally, CISM is normally done at least 24, 48 hours after the event itself. Uh, Now, with an ongoing event like Fort Mac was, and with rotating uh, agencies coming through, uh, there's n- it's much more difficult to have that, that sort of follow-up. Mm. So our primary 
I, I think I can comfortably say by the end of the thing, our primary goal was to, to simply have anybody who didn't have direct support through their agency uh, aware of the fact that there were resources down the road uh, and to plug them into some of them. Okay. How did you create that awareness? Uh, went out and said hi. We worked with uh, a couple of, I'll say, non-traditional agencies that were sort of created out of necessity. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically what we did is we just sought them out, went out and said, hi, how are you doing? How's everything going? Um, you guys are dealing with some pretty terrible stuff. Is there anything we can do for you? So it was the face-to-face -face that yeah. worked for you? Yeah. And because this was so new, were there any hurdles that you had to overcome? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, our, our job description changed on an hourly basis. Uh, so there, I think there's, there's, there were a lot of, I'll, I'll call them learning points, uh, that came out of this. And that's, that's to be understood because this is the first time that there's been a a peer support component in a major disaster. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a new tool in the toolbox. And anytime you're playing with the new tool, things always get a little bit clumsy till you're used to working with it. Uh, and so there was definitely some of that. There were, there were some people up there that were very receptive to our presence. Uh, and I think part of the value of, of us being up there was the, the people who were dealing with the, the fires and, and all of the other stuff that was going on could see, yeah, this is actually an important thing. The, 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 the people at the top of the thing care enough about all of the responders that they're trying to put some, some resources in place. I think that was probably our biggest value. So simply your presence made people feel cared for. Uh, yeah, even if it, they didn't necessarily need to approach you. Yeah, that's, that's it, an interesting it showed point. that there was there was there was an effort, and I think that's probably one of the most important things in regards to mental health with first responders, uh, because in EMS, for example, we've had a very sort of paramilitaristic view of we'll just deal with it. Uh, so you're not going to be able to take people from just deal with it on your own with a bottle of whiskey to let's talk about our feelings overnight. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's going to be a gradual process. In my understanding, uh, CISM is generally a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, initiated mechanism. Yeah. With all the multiple agencies up there, uh, whether it be tri-services or whatever other emergent organizations that, uh, that came up, did you have any issues sort of integrating yourself into um, their peer circle? Uh, it would depend on the agency. Uh, there were some uh, agencies that were exceptionally open to it. Uh, Edmonton Fire uh, comes to mind. There were a few peers from the Edmonton Fire Department who were up there who were extremely uh, receptive, not only to our presence there, uh, but were, were very excited about the possibility of a long-term provincial coordinated effort for any major event down the future. So for future disasters, what would you bring forward? What would you change about uh, this particular deployment? First off, you have to be flexible. Uh, in, in any sort of a disaster situation, any sort of adherence to rigid thinking is, isn't going to work because the situation is so dynamic. Um, so that's, that's a huge component, realizing that there are all sorts of different expectations of you. Mm. Uh, and at the same time, owning the role it would probably be the second piece. So understanding that while there are different expectations from all sorts of different people on the org chart, if you will, uh, you're up there for this function. Um, and those were probably the two, two biggest things that, that we tried to do while we were up there. So the one, the being flexible, seems like something that you're just going to have to do in the moment. But yep. the, the role clarification uh, sounds to me like it would be a pre-deployment or pre-disaster um, planning sort of function, what could be done before the next big event to help 
you and your team integrate into uh, the disaster response? I think the the communication to the various levels of command okay. uh, would probably be the the biggest piece because there were some people there were some some of the the people in the command structure up there were were very protective of us and they they wanted to protect our role and made sure that we were available. Uh, if anyone decided that they they wanted to, to talk to us, um, there were other people who who looked at us as a well. I've got two paramedics and two EMTs, and they're just standing around doing nothing. Uh, and the reality is, we weren't standing around doing nothing, but it has that appearance. So I think the the biggest thing to sort of ironing out bumps in the future would be making sure that all of the people in the command structure are aware this is what the function of these guys is. Um, that's what they're here for. During your deployment, it sounds like you had some issues with the voluntary versus non-voluntary nature of CISM. Could you yeah. to speak to that? So I think that because mental health and first responders is, it's been around for a while, but the, the widespread knowledge of it within the first responder community is fairly new. I think because of that, people have a lot of misconceptions over how it's, I'll use the word best, delivered. Um, one of the big... Uh, sort of cornerstones of the, the peer support slash uh, SISM piece is that it has to be voluntary. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can't force someone to, to talk about their feelings. It's the, the line that I always use is how many, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb really has to want to change. Ah. Um, you, <laughs> you, you can't force someone to talk about their personal trauma without traumatizing them. So it, the, the voluntary piece is absolutely critical. And there were some very well-intentioned people uh, within the command structure who very much wanted to see their people get taken care of. Darn it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was quite a bit of a, a push at times for us to make it a mandatory component where you will now sit down with one of us and debrief. And we had to push back against that and say, that's not how this works. And if you try to do this, you're gonna be doing more harm than good. Um, so there's the, the voluntary piece is, is absolutely critical in that regard. So a large part of what we were trying to emphasize to the people that we were interacting with was, we're here if you want us, and if you don't, coffee's over there. Um, you touched on it, but the, um, the potential for re-traumatization has come up in some of the criticism of CISM. What would you have to say about that in, in your setting especially? Um, I think that a lot of the re-traumatization comes from a non-voluntary component. Uh, I think it comes from poorly executed uh, debriefings, and I would hesitate to call it a debriefing if people are being re-traumatized, mm-hmm. because that's obviously removed the voluntary component from it. Um, so I think those are probably the, the two biggest factors. I think that we have a I think people in general, but particularly uh, first responders, we have a, a weakness in the sense that we're, we're going to help you, damn it. Right. Uh, and the fix-it mentality. Yeah. yeah. And if, if someone doesn't want help, right, it goes back to the, the light bulb. Uh, if someone doesn't want help, all of your great intentions and all of your caring are only going to further traumatize them. So do I believe that uh, in a non-voluntary, poorly executed situation, can there be the opportunity for traumatization? Absolutely. Um, do I believe that it has to happen? Absolutely not. Okay. Is SISM the only tool for the job? Absolutely not. What other tools are out there? 
Uh, well, I think there's a lot of other tools. And again, yeah, you, you kind of touched on this with the what can we do beforehand. Right. Uh, so the the effort that's ongoing right now within EMS provincially for the road to mental readiness, I think, is, a, is an excellent tool. Um, uh, I know that w- within the, the peer support team in Calgary, we've been trained in a m- number of different modalities for how to approach different situations because SISM will only work for... Uh, it's really only designed for uh, the the debrief that comes after a traumatic event. But if you start to talk about the long-term stress injury that can happen psychologically from somebody who's been working in, as a first responder for a long period of time and hasn't been able to access anything, SISM isn't going to work for them. Mm. And what uh, what is it about CISM that made it appropriate for the response? Why was this tool chosen? For the job. I don't know that it was purely SISM that we were sent up there to do. Um, I, I think that we were sent up there with the the idea that we were going to act as peer support for anyone that we could identify who wanted us as peers. So your mandate was actually more holistic than simply delivering CISM? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. I, I don't think that when they were trying to, to address the 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 mental health stuffs that came out of that situation. I don't think they were trying to just send up a, a single tool. And I look at the the diversity of the group that they they sent up. Um, uh, the of the four of us, we all came from radically different backgrounds, uh, and I think that was by design uh, in order to allow us to interface with the, the widest sort of birth of people as possible. How do you see the role of CISM evolving and fitting into the next big disaster? Uh, well, I think that, again, I, I, I hesitate to categorize what we did as purely CISM. Um, and, and that probably goes to one of the biggest things that I think needs to be worked on uh, for the next disaster, is making it clear that the, a peer support role isn't just CISM. The peer support slash mental health component needs to be looked at more and more as uh, a toolbox uh, than a specific tool. And I think the more tools that we can put in the toolboxes that we send to the disasters, um, the more resources that we give our peers to to manage the myriad of different reactions that people can have, uh, that's what I think is, is the best thing going forward. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Nate Pike. It's been a pleasure. Um, it's been a, a great interview, and thanks so much. So that was my interview with Nate Pike. Uh, lots of interesting points there. I thought especially about the way that um, SISM fit into the multiple peer groups uh, within this disaster environment. Yeah. But also SISM itself is, is maybe a little misunderstood uh, in general. And that feature of voluntary enrollment in this program is quite critical. And if that's misunderstood, then, you know, SISM ends up being put in a little bit of jeopardy. So Absolutely. And I think uh, most emergency managers will agree that, you know, disaster mental, mental health is important for first responders and for the public, for anybody exposed to trauma. The devil is always in the details, and it's how do you implement the program, how do you implement it well. Um, sometimes it's a bit of this checklist uh, doctrine that you just want to check the box to say, oh, yeah, we've... we've got system mm-hmm. resources available or whatever and then we're done is that good enough and how how do, how do you know how much resources to actually devote um i don't think anybody's great answers to those questions yeah and the interesting thing that i found was system was was chosen 
mm-hmm. um, almost exclusively. I understand it's a tool in the toolbox, as uh, Nate kept on saying, and there's lots of different things. But SISM was chosen for this disaster setting. And uh, on reading a little bit, I don't know if that is always going to be appropriate because uh, SISM in a normal operating environment, uh, whether it be EMS, fire, police, whatever the case may be, um, deals with individual events as opposed to long-standing days, weeks, months, years, whatever the case may be for disasters. So is that an off-label use or is it just an extended use? I don't yeah, know. It's, and there's also, uh, you know, anybody doing any reading and this sort of thing, there's all sorts of different programs. Uh, there's, you know, the psychological first aid uh, programs, other kind of peer support training. Um, yeah, you get the muddy, the waters are muddy uh, in a hurry. I know in the reading I've done, trying to go through some of the literature, I know we're going to talk about a few articles in a moment, mm-hmm. but uh, it's it's difficult with some of the SISM literature because it almost is self-propelling in the sense that there's no great evidence, but that's like disasters in general. Like It's very hard to have a randomized controlled trial with disasters. So mo- most of it ends up being this naturalistic-based studies that say, yes, we use SISM and it worked, and well, you know, it would have just been so much worse had we not had SISM, but we still mm-hmm. had bad outcomes. And that's uh, one of the reasons it seems that SISM has become this gold standard is because there really hasn't been another tool with the same sort of emphasis on it or oomph behind it. So one of the studies that I looked at was this one by Castellano and Plionis. Um, it's called Comparative Analysis of Three Crisis Intervention Models Applied to Law Enforcement First Responders During 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. So they looked at these three systems. One was psychological first aid, one was critical incident stress management, the CISM that we've been talking about, and the third was this FEMA-specific crisis counseling program, which was um, more specific to civilians rather than first responders. But what they found was that psychological first aid and not critical incident stress management was actually more appropriate to this ongoing disaster environment uh, where the needs were difficult to assess on, a, uh, I guess, an incident basis and, and easier to assess on an individual basis. So um, during 9-11, these tents were set up and people could just wander in on a 24-hour basis to, uh, to, to talk and to receive the psychological first aid on an ongoing basis. So. Yeah. And uh, there's, there's been multiple meta-analyses that have been done um, of varying quality, uh, trying to you know prove that SISM is of benefit and that SISM is the way you should go. Um, we can post some of those other resources, but I think it's definitely an area of ongoing research. Um, what did our, our friend uh, Dr. Bledsoe have to say about SISM? That's right. So uh, Dr. Bledsoe is a prolific writer on CISM. Uh, and EMS he, in general. <laughs> and that's, that's right. He used to be a paramedic before becoming a physician. And his take on uh, CSM is that it is not evidence-based. Yeah. So he did this meta-analysis, which I think you're referring to, of all the, uh, the quality studies on CSM in, in terms of their efficacy. Uh, and he found that not only are there not very many quality studies, but of those studies, a lot of them point to uh, this idea that CISM or CISD, this debriefing as it used to exist, can cause vicarious trauma, can cause re-traumatization, and uh, in some instances is worse than doing nothing at all. Um, He also discussed these ideas that CISM, if it replaced normal peer-to-peer interactions, it could be an issue, uh, and 
there's a lot of, I guess, evidence, including from the World Health Organization, that says CSM should be at least practiced with caution mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as an individual tool. Yeah. So, and it's not designed to be a replacement for formal no. psychiatric care. And, and that's that's and one of the citizen workshops. That's right. Less, yeah. That's one of the issues is that it evolved from basically an after action report and a safe place to discuss feelings and and uh, maybe push for additional care into this idea that it can prevent PTSD, and yeah. that came from nowhere. That didn't come from evidence. That was uh, just one of these tools that began being used in an off label capacity, and it has no evidence yeah. whatsoever and the, the fact that it potentially may cause harm i think is terrifying mm-hmm. as you know healthcare providers that's our you know it might not always be able to make things better but at least we're not going to make things worse do no harm and the fact that you're maybe administering a harmful intervention i think is very disconcerting mm-hmm. um so sometimes here it seems like more questions than answers but yeah. you know i think everybody at least now agrees that disaster mental health is important and we know that there are psychological ramifications from being exposed to trauma and i think that uh, uh that's a positive that's come over the past uh, few decades um you know this top of mind awareness i know pun intended but the intervention and what the best way to manage it is still pretty nebulous mm-hmm. that's a that's a good point and like name was saying in the interview the very presence of a dedicated group of individuals that are there for you is a perception issue so it is a positive step forward mm-hmm. um, no matter what the the tool being used i think and of course the argument for cism is that uh, all these harms and these potential issues arise from improperly administered uh, CSM debriefings. Mm-hmm. So. And so for those who don't know how, because I'm still a little bit confused, what exactly is the difference between the CISM and the psychological first aid? If you're going to yeah. try and put those. So psychological first aid, uh, and again, I'm not an expert on these. Uh-huh. This is based on some, some readings, uh, is a ongoing uh, low-level intervention to add supports to uh, individual resilience. So it's not incidents-based. Okay. It is individual-based. Okay. Oh. All right. Yeah. And in the core tenets to me, I think some of them I always found were just common sense. You know, you have to address their kind of Maslow's hierarchy first. So make sure that they're safe in a safe place, you know, shelter, food, all that sort of stuff and information early on. And then, uh, yeah, kind of explaining this normalcy and trying to get back to normalcy in terms of, you know, this is a normal response for an abnormal situation and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Should we go on to the tools of the trade section? I think so. Yeah. Right on. So the first tool here is a disaster mental health app. And essentially it walks you through pre-deployment actions, deployment actions, and post-deployment actions, and has a variety of useful resources relating to um, supporting people who've undergone traumatic experiences, as well as uh, um, checklists and things uh, for when you might need to refer on to to further supports. Uh, It's called SAMHSA, and that's uh, through the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which is part of uh, Health and Human Services in the the States. Uh, So if you just look in the App Store and type in S-A-M-H-S-A, uh, you'll see it pops up. Um, it also links to lots of other FEMA resources within the app. So I think it's a nice, easy, uh, kind of all-in-one tool and just one source uh, um, uh, that's you know pretty useful for on-the-ground, real-time use. Sounds like a good tool to keep things in the front of your front of your mind and uh, increase that awareness aspect. Yeah, just uh, in time training. Yeah. So the tool that I'd like to talk about is more of an assessment tool. It's called the Mental Health Continuum Model. It's designed by the uh, Mental Health Commission of Canada and is used in this sort of evolving and emerging program called the Road to Mental Readiness. 
Right. So that's one of the key factors of that program. You may have heard of it as being used within responder agencies as a preventative uh, and more pre-deployment sort of resilience building, mental toughness building measure. So the thing I like about this model, uh, this mental health continuum model, is that it is based on observable signs and symptoms of declining or improving mental health. So when you look at it, there's a green side, there's a red side, there's everything in between. And as you move along, these signs and symptoms become more severe. Sure. But it does not include psychological vernacular, it does not include diagnostics, which I think is one of the strongest things about this tool. It's, it's a useful layperson tool for self-assessment in the moment. Yeah, disaster mindfulness. Mm -hmm. I like it. All right. Well, if you have any uh, resources you'd like to share with us, um, I think Grayson and I are, are definitely all ears. Uh, Grayson's been working very hard on the revamp of our new website, so mm -hmm. uh, check it out. Uh, there's a handy feedback box there, and we uh, always like to hear, uh, hear your thoughts. And that's at epicpodcast.ca. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production. As always, this production is designed as a supplementary educational tool for the emergency management professional. And the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that myself or Josh are employed by or may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, please visit our website at epicpodcast.ca. And feel free to follow us on Facebook at Epic Podcast, all one word, or send us a tweet at username Epic Podcast. Until then, I'm Josh. And I'm Grayson. This has been Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. Current, relevant, Canadian.